Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and of course, everything in between. We are back for like three, maybe four weeks in a row now. I know there's some kind of record. I'm just crazy good at this podcasting thing. Clearly, Mr. Reliability over here. Anyway, today we're going to look at some more true crime. It's been a little bit, been a been a few weeks anyway, since we've looked at any true crime. And we're going to take a weird one, a very, very weird one. Creepy, movie-esque, if you will. What might that be? Well, that's a very good question. This is going to be the Keddie Cabin Murders. What just happened between April 11th and April 12th in 1981 in California where four people were brutally murdered? As you can tell, the name is the Keddy Cabin Murders, therefore is going to be scary and very Friday the 13th-y. But let's just get right into it. This is the Keddy Cabin Murders. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Is there anything more terrifying than potentially being murdered while out on vacation in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere, in a cabin that you may or may not be a part of? You may or may not own it. You may not be renting it. You might just be visiting a couple of friends. There's something about cabins in the middle of the woods that is truly terrifying. And I have my own story about being in the middle of the woods. Well, okay, middle of nowhere and being absolutely terrified for my life. I'll get to that just at the end. Remind me. Somebody remind me. Send a reminder on my phone for me, please, to tell that story. I may have told it before, but we're going to tell it again because it is worthwhile. But back to the case at hand. On the morning of April 12th, 1981, Sheila Sharp returned to her home at Cabin 28 in the Keddie Resort in California from the next-door neighbor's house. What the 14-year-old girl discovered inside was nothing but a modest four-room cabin. However, it was more than that when she arrived. It was one of the most macabre scenes in modern American crime history and has come to known as the gruesome Keddy murders. Inside cabin 28 were the bodies of her mother, Glenna Sue Sharp, her teenage brother John and his high school friend Dana Wingate. The three had been bound by medical and electrical tape and had either been viciously stabbed, strangled, or bludgeoned. Sheila's 12-year-old sister Tina Sharp was nowhere to be found. Stranger still, in an adjoining bedroom, the two youngest Sharp boys, Ricky and Greg, as well as their friend and neighbor 12-year-old Justin Smart, were found unharmed. They had apparently slept through the entire massacre, which had unfolded mere feet from their beds. The Sharp family had just moved into Cabin 28 the year before. Sue had just divorced her husband and brought her children from Connecticut to Caddy in North California. The six of them, who included... 36-year-old Sue, her 15-year-old son John, 14-year-old daughter Sheila, and 12-year-old daughter Tina. And of course, there was the 10-year-old Ricky and 5-year-old Greg, and they were friendly with their nearby neighbors at the Keddie Resort. The night before the murders, Sheila had slept over at a friend's house down the street. John and his 17-year-old friend Dana had hitchhiked to a nearby town of Quincy for a party and returned sometime later that evening. Tina had briefly joined her sister at the neighbor's house before returning home to her mother, two younger brothers, and one of the younger boys, Justin Smart. When Sheila returned home early the next morning, 
she found her mother, brother, and his friend bloodied on the living room floor. Naturally, she bolted back to her neighbor's house. Her friend's dad retrieved the three unharmed boys from their bedroom windows so they would not have to see the scene. Smart move. See, that's a dad thinking right there. Not many people would think that. To be like, okay, boys, let's go through the window so you don't have to see this. But that's a dad. That's a dad who cares about those kids and what they might see and the trauma that that would inflict upon them. Good guy. That's a good guy right there. The uh, murders in question had been notably violent. Investigators were called about an hour after Sheila had discovered her slain family. Deputy Hank Clement was the first to arrive at the scene and he reported blood everywhere. Like horror movies, like that scene from Event Horizon where there's blood just fucking everywhere. That's what this guy saw. Terrifying. There were blood stains on the walls, the bottoms of the victim's shoes, Sue's bare feet, and the bedding in Tina's bedroom. The furniture, the ceiling, the doors, and everything had blood on it, including the back steps to the cabin. The prevalence of blood suggested to investigators that the victims had been moved and rearranged from the positions in which they were murdered. Young John was the closest to the front door, face up, his hands blood-covered and bound with medical tape, his throat had been slit. His friend Dana was on the floor beside him on his stomach. His head was badly damaged as though bashed with a blunt object and lay partially on a pillow. He had been manually strangled. His ankles were tied with electrical wire which were wound also around John's ankles so that the two were connected. Sheila's mother had been covered partially with a blanket though that had done little to hide her gruesome injuries. On her side, the mother of five was naked from the waist down, tightly gagged with a bandana and her own underwear secured with medical tape. She had injuries consistent with the struggle and had an imprint of the butt of an 880 pellet gun on the side of her head. Like her son, her throat too had been cut. All victims had suffered some sort of trauma by blood force, by a hammer or multiple hammers. They'd also sustained multiple stab wounds. A bent steak knife was on the floor and a butcher's knife and a claw hammer, both completely covered in blood, were side by side on a small wooden table near the entry to the kitchen. It would take the police hours to realize the fourth victim, Tina, was missing. Like any good investigation from more than 20 years ago, it was fumbled, botched, and basically everything that could go wrong went wrong. When it was eventually discovered that Tina Sharp was missing, the FBI arrived on the scene. Gee, thanks guys. Jesus. The sheriff at the time of the murders, Doug Thomas, and his deputy, Lieutenant Don Stoy, were not initially able to discern an apparent motive. The murders at Keddie Cabin 28 appeared to be random acts of cruelty, saying, quote, the strangest thing is that there is no apparent motive. Any case without an apparent motive is the toughest to solve. Stoy recalled the Sacramento Bee in 1987. Furthermore, the home did not indicate forced entry, though detectives did recover an unidentified fingerprint from a handrail on the back stairs. The cabin's telephone had been left off the hook and all of the lights had been shut off, as well as the drapes being closed. Which, I mean is the bare minimum you want to do if you're going to kill a family. You want to at least close the blinds so that nobody can kind of look in and be like, hey, there's a fucking murder going on in there. Maybe I should, never mind. It's cool. It's just a Halloween thing. Obviously, that's what they're looking for. More confounding is that the three youngest boys were not only untouched, 
but allegedly unaware of the events at all. Even though a woman and her boyfriend in the next cabin awoke around 1.30am to what they described were muffled screams. Unable to discern where they were coming from, they just went back to bed. It's a campground, or so it seems like a campground or resort anyway. You can expect that somebody's going to be out having some fun, maybe screaming in the woods, killing people, or skinny dipping. One of the, there's only two options there, killing people or skinny dipping. Why else would you scream in the woods? Duh. Regardless, the three boys had initially claimed to have slept through the entire massacre. Ricky and Greg's friend Justin Smart did later say that he saw Sue with two men in the house that night. One reportedly had a mustache and long hair, and the other was clean-shaven with short hair, but both in glasses. One of the men did indeed have a hammer. Justin reported that John and Dana had entered the home and argued with the man, which resulted in a violent fight. Tina was then allegedly taken out of the cabin's back door by one of the men. Allegedly, a lot of potential evidence was collected at the scene, but because this was pre-DNA, very little helpful information was actually found at the time. Sheriff Thomas called the Sacramento Department of Justice, which then sent two special agents from their organized crime unit, not homicide, which struck many as odd considering there were four bodies laying in this cabin. One missing kid, four missing lives. You do the math, why not homicide? Why not both? Send both. It could be organized, sure, maybe it's an organized hit, who knows? Send homicide just in case, you know, it's not. Immediately, the two lead suspects were Justin Smart's father and the Sharp's neighbor, Martin Smart, and his house guest, ex-convict, John Bo Bodebay, who is known to have connections to organized crime in the area. Both men had been seen in suits and ties behaving very oddly in the bar the night before. Martin Smart later told the police that he had a hammer that matched the one discovered, and also that his hammer had quote-unquote gone missing shortly before the murders. Unlikely story. Later that year, a knife was recovered in a trash can outside the Kenny General store. Authorities also believe this item to be linked to the crimes. How a year later, or later that year, whatever the wording is, that's uh, how? How does a year go by without nobody taking the garbage out? at that store. That's the most disturbing thing here is that uh, the general store in Ketty doesn't clean the garbages out. Gross. Now it would be another three years after the Ketty murders that Tina was actually found. A man discovered a human skull in the adjoining Butte County, about 30 miles from Ketty in Plumas County. Near the remains, detectives also found a child's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. With that, the remains of Tina Sharp had indeed been found, which made the crimes committed on April 11th or 12th, 1981, a quadruple homicide. The Butte County Sheriff's Department soon received an anonymous call asking, quote, I was wondering if they thought of the murder up in Ketty, up in Plumas County a couple years ago where a 12-year-old girl was never found. Meanwhile, Sheriff Thomas had resigned from the investigation three months in and took a job instead at the Sacramento DOJ. His handling of the case, in retrospect, would be considered disastrous at best and corrupt at worst. Quote, I was told the suspects were told to get out of town, so to me that means it was covered up, Sheila Sharp told CBS Sacramento in 2016. The Sharp's home was demolished in 2004. 
Remarkably, the tape of the anonymous tip regarding Tina was found sealed in a case file untouched by Plumas County Sheriff's Department until 2013. When the case was reopened with new investigators, Plumas's Sheriff Greg Hagwood and Special Investigator Mike Gamberg. In 2016, Gamberg located a hammer believed to be one of the murder weapons in a dried up pond in Ketty. Furthermore, it came to light that Marilyn Smart, Marty's wife and mother of Justin, had left her husband on the day of the murder discovery. Afterwards, she provided Plumas County Sheriff's Department with a handwritten letter sent to her and signed by her estranged husband. And it read, quote, I've paid the price of your love. And now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through? Great. What else do you want? I hope you like the melodramatic touch I put on that. The letter was not treated as a confession, nor was it followed up on at the time. Even though Marilyn admitted in a 2008 documentary that she thought her husband and his friend Bo were the ones responsible. Sheriff Doug Thomas contradicted this and stated that Martin had successfully passed a polygraph test. It was later confirmed that Martin was close with the sheriff. No shit. In 2016, Gamberg met with a counselor at the Reno Veterans Administration. The anonymous counselor told him that in May 1981, Martin Smart had confessed to killing Sue and Tina Sharp, saying, quote, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. When the DOJ was alerted to this confession in 1981, they dismissed it as nothing but hearsay. And anybody who watched the Johnny Depp trial will be familiar with that phrasing. The most widely accepted theory involves a love triangle between Martin, Marilyn, and Sue. It was believed that Martin and Sue were having an affair and that Sue was supposedly counseling Marilyn to leave her husband, who she had said was abusive to her. When Martin discovered this, he enlisted Bo, his friend, and a known mob enforcer who had lived with the Smarts a mere 10 days before the Caddy murders to take Sue out of the picture. This would account for Marilyn leaving her husband the day of the murder discovery. It would also explain why the smart boy and the other sharp boys in the adjoining room were supposedly smeared. Additionally, it gives context to the Martin's handwritten note that Marilyn gave to the Plumas' sheriff's department. Some investigators who picked up on the case when it reopened in 2013 tied the slayings into an even larger plot. To Gamberg, it was clear that the DOJ and Thomas's run sheriff department covered it up, and that's the way it sounds, according to him. And he alleges that Bo and Martin fit into a larger drug smuggling scheme that involved the federal government. Martin was indeed a known drug dealer, and Bo was connected to Chicago crime syndicates with financial interests in drug distribution. Now this might explain why the Sacramento DOJ sent two allegedly corrupt organized crime special agents instead of agents from the homicide department. That's very important here, because these guys are organized crime agents and they're corrupt. This is The Wire, isn't it? I mean, I've never seen The Wire, but I kind of assume that's what it's about, like kind of maybe sort of corrupt. DOJ agents or DEA agents, just corrupt federal agents working in a field that's already really fucking corrupt. But I digress. It also provides an explanation as to why the two lead suspects were seemingly given a free pass and told to leave town by Sheriff Thomas. Furthermore, it does suggest an answer as to why this case was handled so sloppily and why it remains unsolved today. It's seemingly not really a priority to the Sacramento DOJ. What is known is that 37-year-old crime is far from a cold case as new evidence sheds light on what may have occurred at Cabin 28 in Caddy, California.
Although both Martin Smart and Bo Bodebe are now deceased, new DNA evidence has pointed investigators to other suspects who may have had a hand in these murders and who are still alive. Hagwood said, It's my belief that there were more than two people who were involved in the totality of the crime, the disposal of the evidence and the abduction of the little girl. We are convinced that there are a handful of people that fit these roles who are still alive. So what did you think? That's a scary one. That is a terrifying case. And I did promise you a story, a little story time. And please forgive me if I did say this one before. But this was years and years and years ago. I'm talking maybe 10, 12 years ago now where I was dog sitting for my grandfather. He lived up in a place near Wasega Beach. And if you're from Ontario, you probably know that name. Regardless, it's a small tourist town at best. It's a cottage country. Most people don't live there year round except for him. He was on a street that was maybe 20 houses long. However, I was there at a time when there was nobody else there. It was late fall, early winter even, and there was not a soul to be seen around for miles. I'm sitting there, I'm watching the dog. Actually, I think I'm getting ready for bed at this point because I think I was in the bathroom. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the dog, this mild-mannered little fucking shih tzu poodle mix, couldn't be more than 10 pounds, starts going bananas at the sliding door that goes out into the backyard. I should note that the front of the house, or the back of the house, depending on which way you're looking at it, one side leads to a beachfront. The other side leads to a yard with trees and a road, dirt road, and about maybe, like I said, a yard probably about 30 feet long, give or take, completely surrounded by hedges and big pine trees and stuff. So almost like you're living in the woods completely secluded. Dog goes nuts at this door that leads towards the road. I can't see a thing. I'm in the bathroom. And I believe I am completely ass naked because I think I just got out of the shower. It's all coming back to me now. I'm in the shower. Dog goes nuts. I jump out of the shower, run into the living room, stark naked, look outside, can't see anything. And I can't see anything because the light inside the door was on. And if you've ever looked outside a door at night, a glass door, when the light's on inside, you can't see anything, you just see your own reflection. So I turn it out quickly and I don't see anything. And that's even worse because my imagination is now running wild. I don't know what to do, I don't know what to think, I'm shaking, I'm so scared of what could be out there. It's a, it's, it's Jason, it's Freddy, it's a guy in a hockey mask with a machete who's gonna burst into a werewolf at any moment. That's what I'm thinking is happening outside. But nothing happened. Just as the dog started going bananas, he stopped, as if nothing had ever happened. Now, afterwards, my rational brain goes, probably a raccoon or a fox or a skunk or some nocturnal creature, and it startled the dog, and the dog wanted to get it, and, you know, dogs being dogs. But my unrational brain goes, you survived. You're a survivor. You could have died. That was a home invader. That was somebody who didn't know somebody was home was going to come and rob the place. I was like, oh, shit, there's somebody there. I shouldn't go. And that, that giant, muscly man out there in that house, he's going to kill me if I break in and that's a complete lie because at the time i was probably like 110 pounds and very easily killed if somebody broke in beside the point that's my scary story and it reminds me of this a little bit and also the strangers the movie the strangers i believe i watched that movie about a day before that encounter happened which was pretty stupid of me because why the fuck would you go watch that kind of movie when you're gonna stay in the woods by yourself i'm dumb but hey here we are i'm still alive it didn't nobody died I didn't die, dog didn't die, dog's dead now because this was like 15 years ago, but still, 
That's how that story ends. Now, if you have any stories like that where you were camping or you were in the middle of nowhere or you were staying at a cabin and some crazy shit went down, let me know. I want to know that story. I want to tell that story. So if you do have a story like that, hit me up on social media, send me an email, contact me, send a carrier pigeon, a raven, whatever you want. I want to know that story. Anyway, that is going to do it for me this week. My name is Casey and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. I do really hope that you like what you heard. And if you did, please feel free to leave a five-star rating on Spotify. You can do so on the mobile app. If you do, let me know and I will give you a shout out on the podcast. If not, no worries. You can still leave a review on iTunes Apple Podcast if that's your jam. And I will read out any five-star ratings that come along my way. And if you do want to contact me on social media, you can do so on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd is in production. On Instagram at OminousOriginsPod or on Facebook at Horror Shots. So until next time.